to another episode of my weird little podcast. We bring you stories about weird stuff and other things and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So today's stories pretty much have nothing to do with each other. So I don't know what we're going to title this one. Uh, Um, Oh, really? I don't know why I picked these stories. Um, but I don't know why I decided these stories should be together. Um, maybe that can be the title. The one with no theme. That is going to be the title. The one with no theme. Um, mystery. Uh, I think I had a panic when um I needed subjects for the story. I knew what I wanted to do, and then I just randomly picked something for you. I don't even think there's like a specific. I just said this person's name. I was like. Well, yeah, I should stop alluding to it. I was just basically like, do El Chapo. <laughs> and like, I had no uh, reason or it has no correlation with what I'm talking about whatsoever. Uh-huh. Um, which is a, a museum heist. Um, has nothing. Unless El Chapo, you know, robbed museums, which maybe he did. I don't know, but. Yeah, uh, no, that wasn't really his game. No, yeah. no, not not stealing expensive artwork. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I think you should go first. Okay. Because I think mine takes place beginning in 1860 and 1840, but most of it takes place in the 1990s. So should you go first or should I go first? Uh, I don't care. It's up to you. All right. Let's have you go first. Okay. Uh, you yeah, already so said what you're doing. So. All right. Like you said, you, I'm doing uh, El Chapo. Chapo. Um, who I guess some people might know. I mean, he's definitely one that's been um, mimicked as far as like in film and stuff like that. You know, he's known as like one of the biggest um you know, drug traffickers in the world, um, which he definitely is. I would say he would live up to that uh, nickname for sure. Um, but his actual name was Joaquin Guzman Loera. Um, he entered the drug trade as a teenager. He was nicknamed El Chapo uh, or Shorty for his five foot six inch height. Um, oh. Yeah, he was a smaller dude. He was like, you know, like, I don't know. What Wait, how? Five foot six? Five six, yeah. He wasn't that's tiny, so, but he that's was... Still a... taller, that's still taller than me, though. So That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can be El Chapa. Um, so he founded the Sinaloa Cartel. <laughs> yeah, we're going to cool cut that out. He founded yeah, the Sinaloa Cartel <laughs> in 1989, uh, over time building it into a uh, a hugely profitable uh, drug, trafficking oper- drug, drug trafficking operation. Uh, he was known for his violent actions and powerful influence. He successfully orchestrated daring escapes from maximum security prisons in his home country. One such escape came in July 2015, uh, although he was recaptured the following January in the Mexican city of Los Mochis. He was extradited to New York to stand uh, to New York City to stand trial. The drug lord was convicted of a slew of charges and sentenced to life in prison in 2019. Um, that's like you know just a kind of brief summary of. 
where he, where he started, where he's at now. Uh, but yeah, he's in prison at the moment. Uh, but like, I'll oh, tell he's you. still alive. What's that? He's still alive. Sorry, I can't hear you. What did you say? Capo is still alive. Um. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a, it's a trip. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I guess I want to see what how how old would he be? Uh, I guess we'll what figure that out. Yeah. I'll figure that out at the end, I guess. <laughs> um, so in the early years, um, he was born in a rural Mexican town of Badiraguato. Uh, the date of his birth is believed to be April 4th, 1957. So that would make him... Yeah, yeah he's up there, you know. Mm. So, like... I mean, he, I hope I, I wouldn't see him escaping again, but, you know, you never know. That wasn't that long ago. Um... Other other outlets uh, claim he was actually born on December twenty fifth, nineteen fifty four, uh, three three years away from the original date. I told you. Um, I also don't know why they changed it to Christmas. Um, okay. <laughs> but uh, his uh, childhood was um, he his family lived in poverty. He had an abusive father. Uh, he was also in the drug trade. Um, by the time he became a teenager. Uh, Guzman had been kicked out of the family home and was forced to make his own way. Uh, with little schooling in his background, he eventually found himself in his father's path, growing marijuana for small amounts of cash. And he actually did that with um, four different people. And this was like, he was like 15. He had his own crop with like four different people, uh, which is pretty, pretty impressive. Um, by the late 1970s, Guzman had uh, proven his valuable in the narcotics business and began working on another rising, uh, working with another rising young dealer named uh, Hector Luis Palma Salazar. Guzman oversaw the movement of drugs from his home district of Sinaloa, uh, which was a crucial, uh, crucial drug trafficking area on the western end of Mexico, where narcotics flowed north to the coastal cities, like you know, into the U.S. Basically, so like they're basically on the the curve where everyone else has to go through. So. They, that becomes like a very crucial part of the drug trafficking trade because if you can't get through uh, his home district, you know, whatever you did up until then, you know, is worthless because if you can't get it to the United States, you're not going to make money. Um, so he knew that controlling that area was really important. By his late 20s, the quiet but savvy Guzman was uh, supervising logistics for another drug kingpin, Miguel Angel or Angel Felix Gallardo who was founder of the Guadalajara cartel. God, this is butchering this. Uh, Guzman kept a low profile when his boss was eventually arrested for the 85 murder of an American uh, uh, Drug Enforcement Administration, a DEA agent. Uh, he quickly emerged as one of the new faces of the Mexican drug world. It's crazy because I was reading through this, like, because there's so much stuff about El Chapo. Like, there's no way I could, I could do, like, a whole episode on him, but it would take, like, two hours. You know, just going through all the different stuff he did. So I kind of like thinned it down a little bit. Um, uh, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, so that that's what I was that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, he. So like, there's so many times where like he moves up because someone else gets busted, you know, or someone dies, or someone you know, some rival gang takes him out and takes someone else out, and then like he'll move up. You know, it's like it's such a crazy, crazy world. Um, so with the Sinaloa drug cartel um, inheriting some of his. Uh, the, his former boss, they, he took over his territory, uh, so he founded his own cartel, which was known as the Sinaloa, and that was in 1989. 
Uh, by the early 90s, Guzman was on the radar of the DEA and FBI and was considered one of the Mexico's uh, one of Mexico's most powerful and dangerous drug traffickers. As the power of the Colombian drug cartels like Medellin and Cali began to wane, Sinaloa was among the Mexican organizations filling the void. Under Guzman's direction, it took control of the cocaine trade, expanding from South America to the United States. Uh, and that was another thing I noticed is that, uh, like I said, he owned that area that was like the coastline going, you know, before you go into the United States. Um, so he started running stuff for the Colombians. And they, the Colombians were normally taking things up through Florida, you know, so kind of not like on the outside of Florida. So they didn't really have to go through Mexico and stuff. But they knew that Guzman was doing so well with that area and that he could make it happen so much quicker. So they ended up just giving him a cut. And then he was, you know, but now he's kind of owning more, you know, so he's developing this whole notoriety from all of this. Um, part of the success stemmed from Sinaloa's creative smuggling methods, most notably a series of air-conditioned tunnels that ran under the Mexican-U.S. border. Air-conditioned tunnels. Uh, another Please. method involved hiding cocaine powder inside of fire extinguishers and cans that were labeled chili peppers. Um, so basically, yeah, what Al Capone was to beer and whiskey during Prohibition, Guzman was to narcotics. And that was actually a quote from uh, Art Bielek, who is the executive vice president of the Chicago Crime Commission. Of the two, Guzman is by far the greatest threat, and he has more power and financial capability than Capone ever dreamed of. In addition to co cocaine, Sinaloa trafficked heroin, marijuana, and methamphetamines, into the U.S. and beyond. Eventually, the cartel's tentacles touched five continents and grew to the biggest drug operation in the world. Guzman coupled that success with serious muscle. He established gangs with the names such as Los Chachos, Los Texas, Los Lobos, and Los Negros to protect his empire. Over the years, Guzman's men uh, have been accused of committing more than 1,000 murders throughout Mexico. Uh, the casualties include both incompetent henchmen and rival bosses. Uh, that's crazy. Over a thousand. That's nuts. Um, in 1993, Guatemalan authorities arrested Guzman and extradited him to Mexico, where he was convicted and sentenced to a maximum security prison for 20 years. Uh, but even behind bars, Guzman maintained his power. Through uh, bribes, he arranged for conjugal visits and was largely allowed to run the drug operation from within the prison. With his... Um, you know, lore that it was established in Mexico. Many villages uh, in his home district saw him as like Robin Hood, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that's why it was also hard to keep him in prison because people were so, like, guards and stuff were so willing to just take the money and get him out. Yeah. Um, so his legend grew in 2001 when, uh, with the help of bribed prison guards, he escaped prison via a laundry cart. A federal investigation led to the arrest of seven, 71 prison employees, including the warden. He had 71 people in that prison working for him, including the warden. Isn't that, isn't that nuts? Oh, yeah, including the warden. So on the uh, outside of um, prison, he was back into the drug business, uh, which only tightened his control and expanded his fortunes over the next decade and a half. Uh, so after he escaped, he was out for over a decade. In 2009, Sinaloa was reportedly pulling in $3 billion annually, putting Guzman's net worth at around $1 billion. That earned him the number 701 ranking on the Forbes list of world's richest people. Uh, that's so funny that, like, 
you can be that famous and popular and still be wanted by you know everyone in the world, but still make a yeah. Forbes list. Like that's that's so funny. Well, I mean that that would be accurate, right? No, so, that's yeah. true. But it's just so funny that it's like that's what we're worried about. You know, so that's funny. Um, <laughs> Guzman quickly became the number one target for the U.S. government. Uh, they offered five million dollars for uh, as a reward for information to lead to his arrest. In 2012, the U.S. authorities froze the American assets of his family members. Um, an aggressive assault on drug cartels started by the Mexican government in 2006 failed to uncover Guzman, who moved freely around his country. He even got married during that time period, celebrating the event with a large party, party that included police officers and local politicians among the guests. <laughs> Uh, in February 2014, Guzman was finally apprehended in a hotel in the Pacific Reach town of Mazatlan, Mexico, declining requests by American officials to have Guzman extradited to the United States. Mexican, uh, Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto vowed that Guzman wouldn't escape again. Which uh, it would, <laughs> um, and this is uh, Peña Nieto. Uh, it would be more than regrettable. It would be unforgivable for the government not to take the precautions to ensure that what happened last time would not be repeated. Yet, less than 18 months later, Guzman's orchestrated uh, a second uh, uh, daring f uh, flight from prison in July 2015. Uh, for this escape, he slipped through an opening in his cell's shower section, uh, made his way down a 30-foot ladder, and then traveled through a tunnel network that connected his cell to a house that was still under construction about a mile away. Jeez. Right? Uh, on October... Epic. Sorry, what? So that's epic. Right. Uh, on October 17th, 2015, Guzman was reportedly injured on his face and leg when escaping a failed military manhunt to kept, capture him in the mountains of northwest Mexico. Around that same time, unbeknownst to the rest of the world, he conducted a secret interview with American actor Sean Penn. Guzman wanted to make a movie about his life and managed to connect to Penn via Mexican actress Kate Del Castillo, which I totally forgot about that whole interview. I never really even got to watch that. And I, I wish I would have watched that before then. But I, feel like uh, I need to watch that now. I feel like it's it was it's so it was so weird at the time. Yeah, because everybody was looking for him still. And they're like, wait a minute. Sean Penn yeah. knows where he is. And the government doesn't. Yeah. Um, uh, so. Sorry, what was that? Oh, yeah. So on January 8th, 2016, Peña Nieto, who is the Mexican president, announced on Twitter that Mexican authorities had recaptured Guzman after a shootout earlier that morning in the city of Los Mochis. Mission accomplished, the president wrote. We have him. I guess mission accomplished is a popular thing for presidents to say. Uh, the, drugs lord's <laughs> the drug lord's apprehension came one day before his interview with Penn and was published on Rolling Stone's website. It was unclear whether his communication with the actor contributed to his capture, although Mexican authorities cited the monitoring of his electronic exchanges as helpful to the process. Guzman was returned to the same prison from which he escaped uh, the previous summer. He was later moved to a facility near the U.S. border in Juarez, Mexico. In October 2016, Vicente Bermudez Zacharias, the judge presiding over Guzman's case, was murdered near his home. Um, in January 2017, the murder... Uh, the Mexican government extradited. Ex, sorry, God. In 20, January 2017, the Mexican government extradited Guzman to the United States to face drug trafficking and other charges. The following day, Guzman appeared in U.S. federal court in Brooklyn and pleaded not guilty to over a dozen charges. In May 2018, one of Guzman's lawyers, a 
uh, Eduardo Balareso asked Judge Brian M. Kogan to move the trial from Brooklyn to the federal courthouse in lower Manhattan, uh, which is directly connected to the high security facility where the defendant was being held. And that request was denied. They were just that worried about it. Um, The trial began amid uh, heavy security, obviously. His lawyer immediately raised eyebrows with the claim that the actual leader of the Sinaloa cartel was a man named Ismael uh, El Mayo Zambada, who had paid the entire government to look the other way. In January 2019, the defense team produced... You just just pay the... I'm just going to pay the entire government. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a big like conspiracy too, like to say that whole thing, like in court. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, in January, 2019, the defense team produced a witness who testified that former president Peña Nieto had accepted a bribe from El Chapo. Another witness testified that the drug Lord's wife, Emma Coronel Aspiro uh, was heavily involved in planning his 2015 escape from prison, uh, which I'll tell you about a little bit later, actually. Um, guilty verdict and sentencing on February 12th, 2019, uh, after more than 200 hours of testimony and 56 witnesses, El Chapo was found guilty on all 10 counts against him, including engaging in a continuing criminal enterprise, conspiracy to launder narcotics proceeds and use of firearms. Um, he was sentenced to 30 plus uh, years along with ordering him to pay $12.6 billion in restitution. Um, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, they did make a Netflix show, but then yeah, it was hard. Uh, it's, it's believed Guzman has married at least three times and is the father of nine, possibly 13 children. Among his children who have taken roles within their father's drug trafficking business, Ivan Guzman, uh, who is perhaps one of the most conspicuous, sharing his extravagant playboy lifestyle for cars, wild animals, guns, and parties on social media. And I actually looked that up too. It's funny. Uh, he doesn't, he is not shy at all like on his like twitter and stuff just like posting all kinds of money and guns and stuff like that it's crazy um so (laughs) going back to emma coronel aspiro who is um uh the wife of um el chapo or at least at the time i guess or since he's been in prison um she pleaded guilty in June to charges ranging from conspiracy to illegal drug distribution. Uh, she also admitted to helping Guzman escape from a Mexican prison, which they thought she did before. Uh, she could have faced life in prison, but U.S. prosecutors asked for a shorter sentence after she expressed remorse. Her husband, 64, okay, 64, okay, that's, that's actually nothing, is currently serving a life sentence in Colorado. Uh, according to court documents, uh, Espiro, who was a former beauty queen, Inspired with Guzman and other members of the Sinaloa cartel to traffic cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and marijuana in the U- into the U.S. and launder the proceeds. Um, Authorities, uh, like I said, they believe she was critical in helping him uh, escape the prison, the maximum security prison in 2015. Um, she helped um, complete air ducts, lights, helped with the motorcycle. Um, she also provided him with a GPS-enabled watch and relayed messages to operatives while he was inside. Um, And the tunnel actually came to a place, which was a house that she bought off the books. So they bought like a house, right? Like kind of as close to the prison as they could. And that's where he eventually Mm -hmm. came out of. Like that was the the Shawshank Redemption hole where he crawled out and screamed in the rain. But it was was inside a house, so they were fine. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
The federal prosecutor, federal prosecutor Anthony Nardozzi, had asked for a four-year sentence earlier this month, saying that while her conduct was significant, her role was minimal, and she quickly accepted responsibility for her criminal conduct. Also, um, I found out that she was, um, they started dating when she was like 17, you know, and uh, she was a beauty queen and stuff. So it's like really hard to know, like, I mean, if you're, if you're with someone that's that powerful, like, uh, is it, is it because they're that powerful or is it because you're scared because they might do something to you? So you're just going to help them as much as you can, you know, like, yeah, I mean, like, who knows, like. That's how I feel with a lot of those situations, you know. And then they get the bums rush when it was really them that started all this whole thing. I mean, I'd be scared as hell to deal with a person like that. Like some of the things that I was reading, like he was he was extremely brutal. He would make people dig their own graves and kill them first. Like he would he would do all kinds of crazy shit. Mm. You know? So he's obviously, and that was why he got such a great reputation as a kid because he would stand up for it, you know, for himself, you know. And then like he would take people out, <laughs> just. No problem. Um, dun, 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 dun. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, I did want to mention that uh, um, her father was also sentenced to prison in Mexico on weapons charges in 2017, um, who was um, also working with, of course, the cartel. Um, and they, they actually said that she's never going to go back home or never going to be able to go back home because of all this, you know, and it's like everybody attached to this family, you know, no matter what you do, yeah. like you're going to, you know, someone's going to be, you know, looking to exact revenge or something from you or, you know, like, or just yeah. take them down for you know, what your, your father or uncle or whoever, however you're related to him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's El Chapo. Like there's that, there's that he's still in prison now. Um, he did. Uh, like I said, like he was known for being basically the most powerful drug trafficker in the world. He used literally every type of transportation device to move it, like including uh, submarines, like trains, airplanes, Please. trucks, tunnels, air conditioned tunnels. Like when he escaped from that last uh, tunnel, there was actually a motorcycle at the bottom of the ladder where the tunnel started. So he could ride oh, the wow. motorcycle down the tunnel. Like, that's crazy. Like they were just ready. Um, but yeah, that's El Chapa. Like, uh, it's not like, like I said, you could go forever about him, but it's just like watching like Casino or something. It's just like, and this is a creepy murder, and this is a different murder, and then he's just going to murder these people, and then you know, yeah. it's like, it's a lot of like henchmen and stuff. I absolutely forgot that I was going to mention this tidbit at the beginning of this podcast. This is absolutely also unrelated to anything we're talking about today, but I came across this on uh, the the internet. <laughs> on, uh, heard of that. So on MSN.com, there's three news. I think it's NBC3 News, Las Vegas. Uh, Las Vegas police find human remains inside stolen vehicle. Driver arrested. A lengthy vehicle pursuit led to human remains being found inside a stolen car near the Palms Hotel and Casino. On December 23rd, around 3.42 p.m., Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department officers tried to conduct a traffic stop on a car near Tropicana, Tropicana and Duneville. According to police, the driver, 57-year-old Eric Holland, failed to stop and fled the scene, leading to a pursuit. 
During the chase, a police air unit noticed the driver switching vehicles. But once the police located and tried to stop the car once again, Holland fled a second time. The air unit followed the car and guided officers to an apartment complex near the 4,200 block of West Rochelle, Rochelle? Rochelle Avenue. Officers tried to approach Holland as he was exiting the vehicle, but he began throwing items at officers in an attempt to flee a third time. He was later taken into custody. Police determined both trucks had been reported stolen and discovered human remains in one of the beds during the investigation. LVMPD's homicide unit took over and identified Holland as the suspect in the homicide. He was transported to the Clark County Detention Center and was booked for his outstanding warrants and open murder. Further investigation is still ongoing. If you have any information about this incident, please contact the police. So that's the thing (laughs) that I read. And I was like, I feel like I should mention that on the podcast. I don't know why. Um, So human remains found in Vegas a couple days before Christmas. That's crazy. Happy holidays, everyone. Exactly. (laughs) In case you didn't know. And uh, to my friends, my work friends, happy mm. Thanksgiving. Mm. Um, um, so let's get into my story, which I'm actually very excited to talk about. I feel kind of bummed. I feel like I should have maybe had a better theme for this episode because I do really like this story, but whatever. I'm just going to get into it. Um, so I am talking about the biggest art heist ever. In the history of everything, ever, and the most mm-hmm. the most expensive things ever stolen, um, and the most expensive item ever stolen, and all of that is in this story. So I'm talking about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and their uh, art heist, and just I'm going to talk about the museum a little bit too as well. So I got all my information from BuzzFeed Unsolved, Wikipedia, Boston 25 News, New England's Unsolved, The Gardner Gardner Heist 30 Years Later, NBC Boston, Smithsonian, mag.com, and the Isabella Garden Stewart, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum's website itself. So uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is on my bucket list, a hundred percent to go visit. It looks so beautiful. It has tons of art in it, and it's just got beautiful architecture. It's literally got a garden in the middle of it. It's freaking gorgeous. And uh, when I finally make my way to Salem, Massachusetts, I will drive the forty-five minutes south visit the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum because I absolutely have to. Um, It just looks really beautiful and looks like it would be like such a wonderful experience just to spend a day there soaking it all in. So uh, we're going to start with who is Isabella Stewart Gardner? So I'm going to quote, there is this wonderful quote on the website of the museum about her. But I think just, I'm just going to start there. Uh, the, so uh, 
here we go. <laughs> Mrs. Jack Gardner is one of the seven wonders of Boston. There is nobody like her in any city in this country. She is a millionaire, bohemian. She is the leader of the smart set, but she often leads where none dare follow. She imitates nobody. Everything she does is novel and original. That's from a Boston reporter. She sounds incredible and I can totally relate. I too go where no one follows and I too am novel and original. So, so there. <laughs> um, so Isabella Stewart Gardner was born in New York City on April 14th, 1840. Are you actually, are you listening to this? Okay. You can chime in if you want to. Oh, no, I know. Sorry, I'm just oh, okay. waiting for the story to get gone. <laughs> okay. So Isabella Stewart Gardner was born in New York City on April 14th, 1840, into a well-to-do family. Her father, David Stewart, um, made his fortune importing Irish linen and later through investments. The family lived on University Place in the West Village. Isabella was privately educated in New York and finished abroad. I always like the idea of finishing school, you know. I just think that sounds so proper and amazing, and I could probably benefit from going to a finishing school uh, myself. So, <laughs> um, a Paris schoolmate, Julia Gardner, introduced Isabella to her brother, John Jack Lowell Gardner Jr., uh, and in 1860s, a few days before her 20th birthday, Isabella Stewart, Gar Stewart, sorry, Isabella Stewart at this time, married Jack Gardner in Grace Church in New York City. They moved to his hometown of Boston and settled into a house in the fashionable Back Bay at 152 Beacon Street, a wedding gift from her father. God, they sound... I just, I just want to be glamorous and wealthy. Someone give me money and dresses um, <laughs> and beautiful pieces of artwork. Um, in 1863, the Gardners had a son, John Lowell Gardner III, called Jackie, who died of pneumonia at less than two years old. In 1867, on the advice of her doctor and hoping to rouse her from her depression, Jack Gardner took Isabella to Northern Europe and Russia, and this was the first of many trips abroad, later including Egypt and the Middle East and Asia. Isabel reveled in travel, keeping elaborate, elaborate journals of her visits. Isabel was drawn to the intellectual life of Boston and Cambridge. In 1878, she attended the readings of Charles Eliot Norton, the first professor of art history at Harvard University. And he invited her to join the Dante Society, which sounds like a really fun book club. And they sound super posh. And I, I also would like a book club with my friends, but I'm already pushing it with making everyone do this podcast. So <laughs> um, we don't need to read books, too. We already research and read so much stuff. But the Dante Society, that sounds so cool. Yeah, it sounds cool. So... uh. <laughs> Basically, they read uh, like works of Dante and probably some other stuff as well. 
we should drink tea when we do this. I'm going to make us drink tea, you know, from here on out. Because we need to be more, I don't know, refined. <laughs> right. I'm going to tell Roxana and uh, uh, Teresa that we need to drink tea while we're doing this. It's it's a requirement now. Okay. Um, then we'll have to take restroom breaks, though. So that's, oh, well. Let's say Double-edged like we sword, that, that is. Right. What? Like we don't already do that, yeah. Well, yeah. No, we hold it. I actually make them hold it. It's part of the contract That's um, that I made them sign in blood when we started this. Uh, we actually never did contracts, which will probably bite me in the butt at some point, but oh well. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> More stuff for me to edit out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Isabella was drawn to the intellectual life of Boston and Cambridge. I already read all this. Uh, so uh, he invited her to join the Dante Society. Uh, with Norton's encouragement, she began collecting rare books and manuscripts, beginning with early editions of Dante's work. In 1884, Isabella and Jack Gardner first visited the Palazzo Barbaro, a Venetian palace owned by Bostonians Daniel and Ariana Curtis. They also sound super posh, and I wish they were my friends, but they're probably no longer alive if they were <laughs> adults in 1884. Um, the Palazzo became the gathering place of a group of American and English expatriates, uh, including the painters John Singer Sargent, James McNeil Whistler, and Ralph Curtis, and the art connoisseur Bernard Berenson. Palazzo Barbaro became a major source of inspiration for Isabella in the creation of her museum in Boston. I cannot stress how beautiful this museum is. Just everything about it from the inside out to the outside that is inside to the wallpaper. It is so gorgeous. And I just, it's so on my bucket list. So Isabella met with the charming and into intelligent Harvard student Bernard Barrison in 1886 with funds from the gardeners and others. Berenson set off for Florence in 1887 to pursue a literary career, but soon discovered his true calling as a connoisseur of Italian Renaissance art. He became, uh, he became Isabella's chief art advisor, helping her acquire many of the masterpieces in her collection. Barrison wrote of Isabella. So Berenson wrote of Isabella. She lives at a rate and intensity with a reality that makes others live other. Sorry. Let me start over. She lives. She lives at a rate and intensity with a reality that makes other lives seem pale, thin, and shadowy. I want to, I want to do that. I want to have that effect on people. I want to like be so incredibly cool and amazing that people look sad in comparison to me <laughs> um yeah when you said yeah. shadowy it reminded me of when richard called me willowy yeah. Like, oh, yeah, that's, that's not something you want to be called yeah. yeah i just i just imagine uh wendy in the shining <laughs> you know right yeah Right. That's that's what I imagine Willowy is like. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. 
So Jack Gardner died suddenly of a stroke on December 10th, 1898. Six weeks later, Isabella Gardner continued with their shared plan to purchase a plot of land in the Fens and selected local architect Willard T. Sears to draw up plans for a museum. At the time, there were almost no other buildings in the area. Construction of Isabella's museum began in 1899 and was completed in late 1901. She moved into the private uh, fourth floor living quarters and devoted herself to personally arranging works of art in the historic galleries on the first three floors. In 1901 and 1902, Isabella installed her collection of paintings, sculptures, tapestries, furniture, manuscripts, rare books, and decorative arts. She continued to acquire works and change the installations for the rest of her life. The museum opened on January 1st, 1903. Guests were invited to a grand opening celebration of music, art, and horticulture. There was a concert by members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, or BSO, and a dramatic unveiling of the interior courtyard garden. Guests included scholar Charles Eliot Norton, philosopher William James, and Boston Symphony Orchestra founder Henry Higgins, which I really tried hard not to Higgins. say that. Yes, Henry Higgins. Uh-huh. Um, <sighs> I'm, I really need to go to finishing school. <laughs> that needs to happen. Uh, when she opened the museum to the public the following month, visitors were invited to see one of the finest private art collections in America. Over the next 20 years, Isabella Stewart Gardner filled her museum with visual and performing artists to organize concerts, lectures, and exhibitions, and encourage artists to make themselves home in the museum. John Singer Sargent painted in the Gothic Room. Ruth St. Dennis danced her famous piece, The the Cobra in the Cloisters. Um, The Australian Opera Opera star Nellie Melba uh, performed from the balcony of the Dutch Room. Speaking of Nellie Melba, have you ever heard of Peach Melba? Oh, yeah. Like the dessert? Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's named after her. Just letting you know. You're like, yeah, I know. Interesting. Which Peach Melba sounds really good. Mm -hmm. Um, It's basically peaches, hot peaches on ice cream. I've never had it, but. I'm sure it's good. I got to back this. All right. Peach Melba. Uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner suffered a stroke in 1919, but continued to receive guests in her museum for the next five years. She died in 1924, leaving a museum for the education and enjoyment of the public forever. She provided an endowment to operate the museum, stipulating in her will that nothing in the gallery should be changed and no items be acquired or sold from the collection. So basically, the museum is as it was when she passed away to this day, except for a few things, (laughs) and which I'm going to get into. So basically, the museum remained the way it was. You know, there was a few security implements, you know, made 
to the museum with, you know, updating technology here and there, but uh, not very much changed until 1990. So after her death in 1924, the museum fell into financial disrepair. By 1990, the museum's security flaws were common knowledge among Boston's criminal elite, making it a bit of a sitting duck for a heist. This is per The Guardian. So on March 18, 1990, in the middle of updating their outdated security system, 13 pieces of art were stolen with a combined value of over $500 million. Is that $500 million then? Is that $500 million then? Uh, in 1990? Yeah. Um, yes, but also today. <laughs> I mean, I guess. I don't know how much for inflation. That's not that long ago. Um, I, mean, yeah, I would say it's probably like a billion probably now. Like, um, yeah, we'll go with that's 1990s money. Right. Um, so two security guards were on duty. Uh, Richard E. Abeth, music, a music school dropout, part of a rock band. He admittedly showed up to work, oftentimes drunk or high on <laughs> uh, on numerous occasions. Jeez. He claimed he was sober the night of the robbery. Uh. This is a quote from him. I'd be getting off of the stage somewhere and wanted to slow down before I went to the most boring job in the world. <laughs> so he's definitely invested in the safety of that museum. Right, yeah. Uh, at 12.54 a.m., a fire alarm went off on the third floor of the building. When investigated, they uh, he the security guard, which would be uh, Abeth here, Richard Abeth, uh, went to investigate. There was no fire. At 1.24 a.m., two police officers buzzed uh, into the security desk where Abeth was stationed. So this was on a door that was like on the side of the museum. So uh, but this is like the door leading directly into where the security desk is. Um. So they they buzzed into the desk. The two men claimed that they were responding to a disturbance call in the area and demanded entry. So it was museum protocol not to en let anyone enter, even police officers. They weren't supposed to let anyone enter at all. Now, this was on St. Patrick's Day, so the story is kind of believable that these two police officers are saying that there's a disturbance in the area that there are investigating because there's like partiers and stuff in the street. Uh, Richard Abeth said he had tickets to a Grateful Dead concert later that day. So this is like one in one thirty in the morning and he had Grateful Dead concert tickets later that day and he didn't want to get arrested for not letting the officers in. So he decided to uh, let them in and violate museum protocol. So they entered uh, and uh, one of the police officers said to him, you look familiar. Uh, I think we have a default warrant on you. Come out and show us some identification. So he leaves the desk, which has the only panic button on it that would alert authorities. That is the only one in the whole museum is at the security desk, which is a flaw in their security system. But as we know, they were updating that. 
Um, so he was then told to face the wall and spread eagle, and he was immediately handcuffed. Abbott later said that he thought it was odd that they did not frisk him before handcuffing him, and then it dawned on him right at that point that this could possibly be a robbery. Uh, as this was happening, the second guard arrived, and he too was handcuffed at gunpoint. Uh, the second guard, uh, whose name I did not get, um, the second guard said, why am I being arrested? And the man replied, you're not being arrested. This is a robbery. Don't give us any problems and you won't get hurt. To which the guard replied, don't worry. They don't pay me enough to get hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so they didn't put up a big fight, but you know, at that point, like, don't just don't, you know? Right. Yeah. What can you do? You know? So their heads, hands, and feet were tied up with duct tape. Now, I'm going to say that I believe it was Abbott who was duct taped quite a bit more than the second security guard, which kind of leads into some theories a little bit later. And so they were tied up with duct tape. Um, I believe they were put into the basement. Uh, the robbers then went to the second floor and split up according to the sensors they had in the museum. So they only went up to the second floor. Um, at some point, an alarm went off to alert security guards that someone had gotten too close to one of the art pieces. And the robbers found the alarm and smashed it. But this alarm only alerted the security guards. So, like, authorities are, have still not been called at this point. So at 2.28 a.m., the robbers came to check on the security guards. Uh, they also located the security tapes that captured them outside of the museum and throughout. And they either took the tapes or destroyed them, but they had the tapes. And so there's no tapes of them in the area. Uh, 13 minutes later, they left with 13 pieces of artwork. So they were in there for over an hour. You know, and most art heists are only like 10 minutes or so. Like real quick, you're stealing one paint, painting and you're out. This is the largest one. They were in there for over an hour and they were able to steal 13 pieces of artwork. Including, now these are the pieces that were stole, including uh, the concert by Vermeer. Estimated value of a quarter of a billion the most valuable thing ever stolen. Rem yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? Rembrandt's Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, valued at $150 million. Rembrandt's A Lady and Gentleman in Black. A Rembrandt etching portrait of the artist as a young man. Flint's, Flink's, Flink's, Flink's Landscape with an Obelisk. A uh, Chinese Shang Dynasty coup from the 12th century BC, BC. It's like a water or a wine jug. It looks like a vase. So they didn't just steal paintings or, you know, pictures. They stole other things, too. Um, five pieces from Edgar Degas, all featuring horses, most no notably a watercolor leaving the paddock. Nearby, the thieves stole a bronze eagle or finial 
from the top of a framed Napoleonic flag. Uh, and uh, Edward Manet's says Tortoni, whose frame was found in the security director chair. Now that piece was not located on the second floor. It was actually located on a lower floor. I want to say the first floor. Um, and the frame was found in the security director's chair of this painting. So we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, there was an attempt to take a fourth Rembrandt, but it was, it's believed that they did not take it because it was too hard or that they just ran out of time. Uh, Bizarrely, the burghers attempted to remove the flag of the Napoleon's Imperial Guard from its frame, but failed to do so, do so instead settling for the bronze eagle-shaped finial ornament. Uh, stranger still, the perpetrators left possibly the most expensive work in the museum untouched, Titans, the Rape of Europa, which is hanging in the third floor gallery. Witnesses claim that they saw the robbers parked in their car nearby the museum in a red hatchback. So they witness saw them before the robbery, like two police officers in a red hatchback. So they're pretty sure they know what type of car that they were in. Okay. So these guys load all this stuff up into their red hatchback and they're gone. Uh, police have not been called at all. Nobody knows that anything is going on. Four hours later, the two morning uh, shift guards show up to work, unable to enter the museum, prompting the deputy uh, security officer to call the police. At 8.30 a.m., the police arrive and get in to discover the two night security officers handcuffed in the basement. The guards were able, they did um, see the robbers' faces, but when Abath was asked uh for him to describe what they were like. He was not able to recall what the two men looked like. He just claimed that the police sketch was awful. And please look up the police sketch because he's right. It's awful. It looks like two cartoon police officers. Like, it's not very good. It, I, I know police sketch artists. Like, I know your jobs are very hard and you are doing incredible work. I can't talk. You do incredible work. This is not it, though. And, yeah, are you looking uh, it up? <laughs> right? That's uh, funny. <laughs> oh, man. It's like... Isn't that, it, like, the most generic... Well, I was about to say, like... Yeah, you've ever seen. You're going to look go outside looking for cartoon characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in 2005... Uh, Abbott would be interviewed and he did claim at this time that one of the men looked like Colonel Clink on Hogan's Heroes, which would have been a pop popular show or, uh, uh, when he was younger, a little earlier than the 1990s. So in April of 1994, an anonymous letter was sent to the museum claiming to know the location of the art. The author seemed to have a great knowledge of the pieces stolen and the art world in general. The writer claimed that the pieces were in a controlled environment, but the museum had to act quickly because a buyer in another country who did, know, did not know that they were stolen could purchase them and claim legal ownership 
Uh, the writer asked for $2.6 million. The museum agreed to give him this. And there was a second letter sent stating that this person was pleased that the, that the museum agreed to pay him, but did not like that the FBI was involved and asked if they were trying to get the middleman arrested and wrote in all caps, you cannot have both. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he promised to give some clues. Like even though he, at this point he was like, even if you're not able to give me the money, I promise I'll send you some clues letting you know where this uh, artwork is. But then he never wrote ever again. So they never got their clues. They never were able to give him money. Nothing came of that. So in 2013, the FBI announced that it had identified the two thieves with a high degree of confidence. In 2015, uh, the organization revealed that the name names of its primary suspects, George Reisfelder and Leonard DiMuzio, two associates of the late mobster Carmelo Mer Merlino, both resembled the police sketches of the criminals and died within a year of the heist. The investigators also said that they suspected the art was transported via organized crime networks to Connecticut and the Philadelphia region, uh, where the thieves attempted to sell the works on the black market. After those attempted sales, however, the artwork trail goes cold. Um, authorities were initially suspicious of the two guards on duty that night, Abbott, a self-described hippie and rock guitarist, was a regular on the night shift. Um, oh, no, no. Okay. I'm going to get into that. So the artwork trail goes cold. Um, there was also suspicion Bobby Donati, a mobster who may have organized the theft with fellow criminal uh, Robert Bobby Garente in order to use the art as a bargaining chip to get their friend Vincent Ferreira out of jail per Lauren Crack of Esquire. Um, both Donanti and Garente are now dead. So a uh, jeweler, Paul Calantropo, formerly of Boston, came forward with an account that links Bobby Donati, a longtime suspect and local robber, to one of the pieces of the art of art stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, uh, the Boston Globe reported in the in the interview, uh, Callan Tropo said that Donati, whom he had known for years, showed up at his office at the Jewelers Building in downtown Boston about a month after the famous heist with an eagle-shaped finial that he asked the jeweler to appraise. Callan Tropo said he immediately recognized it as one of the stolen art pieces and told him it was worthless. Uh, former mobster Robert uh, Gentile has long maintained his innocence despite a bevy of evidence pointing to his involvement in the crime. The uh, He was released from prison in 2019 after serving 54 months on an unrelated charge. He remains the only living person who likely had firsthand knowledge of the 1990 uh, heist. Now, uh, authorities initially were suspicious of the two young guards on duty that night. There, this, so Richard E. Abath is pretty suspicious. 
Like, one, why would he just let the police officers in? You know? But I get that he was probably baked and didn't care. Um, Two, these people who were in there had to have cased the joint very well. They had to have known that it would have been very easy for them to get away with this and be in there for so long for over an hour, you know? Yeah. So that leads them to believe that people to believe or think that these uh, one or two of these guards were in on it, were the inside man, or there was an inside man, maybe not necessarily these two guards, but someone who knew more about the inner workings of this museum. Um, also the sensors that go off in the museum, um, that track, you know, people's movements through the museum only went off on the second floor, um, and the areas where most of these items were taken, except for that one painting whose frame ended up in the security director's chair. So there's a lot that believe that that piece was stolen ahead of time. And uh, one of the security guards, most likely Abeth, was one who took that. Um, however, that's not proven, obviously. Anyway, so uh, Abeth, who was a self-described hippie and rock guitarist, was a regular on the night shift because, uh, because art crimes of this nature typically require inside source. He was high on the list of possible conspirators. Abeth, for his part, has long denied any role in the heist, and authorities have generally cleared him as a person of interest. Um uh, as reported by Tom Masberg for the New York Times in 2015, here's a quote from Abeth. Uh, I was just this hippie guy who wasn't hurting anything, wasn't on anybody's radar, and the next day I was on everybody's radar for the largest heist in history. Uh, he said this to NPR. Uh, but this came up. Abeth's role in this, once again, came under scrutiny in 2015 when the United States Attorney's Office in Massachusetts in Massachusetts, uh, released a rare security camera video. This is a grainy footage showing Abath, who was on guard during the day of March 17th, so the day before, 17th, opening the same side doors used by the thieves and admitting an unidentified man in a waist-length coat and an upturned collar, as Times reported. Uh, he was also reported um, letting a bunch of his friends into the museum to go to a party at one of their New Year's Eve parties. Um, so he had let people in, but he'd let someone in the day before the heist into the museum. Uh, so uh, overall, the mu- museum security director, Anthony A. Amor, told the Times, the video raises more question than questions than it answers. Today, museum goers can visit the Gardner Museum in person or take a virtual tour showing what the thieves left behind. Empty frames that hang eerily on the walls as a reminder of the loss. The museum is offering a $10 million reward for information leading directly to the safe return of the stolen work. 
a share of the reward would be given in exchange for information leading to the restitution of any portion of the works. A separate reward, reward, a separate reward of a hundred thousand dollars is being offered for the return of the Napoleonic Eagle Finial. Anyone with information about the stolen artwork should contact the Gardner Museum directly. Confidentiality is assured. Anthony Ardmore, the director of security, can be contacted. Uh, his phone number is on the museum's website, but he can also be contacted at reward at gond sorry at reward uh reward at gardnermuseum.org so please if anyone's listening to this please let the artwork come back and uh, if you ever get a chance go visit the museum because even looking at these empty frames is so poetic and the museum itself is gorgeous and it's definitely there on my bucket list but that is the biggest art heist ever of uh, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. That's crazy. That's fucking nuts. Yeah. And it was, uh, you heard me clicking throughout that. I was just me. I was just looking through some of the paintings while you're talking about them. Gorgeous. They have some gorgeous stuff there. Like knowing that one is like the, you know, probably the most expensive one looking at that one and being like, man, I don't even know if I've ever seen this painting before. You know, but maybe that's because I've never uh, thought about this before. But yeah, some cool. That's that's crazy, man. That's that's insane. They like did their homework. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that. So here's to the the episode with no theme, just some random stories. Uh, but whatever, it's a weird podcast, so uh, mm-hmm. deal with it. Listen to it. Please <laughs> listen to it <laughs> and enjoy it. Um, but anyways, that's been another episode. Please follow us, find us on Instagram. Please share this podcast with other people. Please listen to our other podcast, Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. Uh, we will be posting more episodes on that coming up because I realized that you guys actually listen to that. And I'm very excited that we're still getting listeners to that. So I will be I took a like a six month hiatus, but there will be a new uh, episode coming up for that uh, podcast as well. So we'll be sure to stay tuned. That'll be up in maybe a month or so. And uh, we're going on a big trip coming up at a surprise location. And we'll do be doing an on-site recording of a podcast within a haunted place that is historical and weird. And I'm so excited about that. So very excited. So please, yeah, follow us on Instagram. Uh, Follow us on TikTok. I'm making TikToks now. I will be making more TikToks. Uh, If you have any suggestions for episodes, please email us at myweirdlittlepodcast at gmail.com. And stay spooky, everyone. Ooh.